Events of the past 12 months have once again highlighted that Australia still has a long way to go when it comes to our relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. 20 years on from the Reconciliation March of 2000, the path to reconciliation is still one that as a nation we have a long way to travel. In that spirit of reconciliation, I would like to offer my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, both past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So hello everyone and welcome to yep. this edition of the UX Australia podcast. I'm joined here today by Katrina and Roland from Orica. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks for inviting Hi Steve. Us. Nice to be here. So whereabouts exactly do we find you today? Well, we're in um, beautiful bushland out in Curry Curry in New South Wales. So that's about mm, 40 minutes from Newcastle. Yeah. Uh, so we're in the technical centre is what we uh, yeah. call this place. We're very lucky. We have kangaroos jumping around uh, on site and the occasional snake in the office, yep. which doesn't go down as well, but connected to nature, let's put it that way. Yeah, I suspect the uh, the kangaroos would be much more welcome than the snakes most of the time. Popular, yes. Yeah, I bet. Now, can you tell us a little bit about Orica? I, I, don't, I don't think the company will be as familiar to our listeners as some other organisations. Yeah, so I can give you a little bit of a, um, an explanation of what Orica is. It's obviously one of Australia's um, biggest companies. It's on the share market, uh, and it's actually the world's number one uh, supplier of explosives, um, and those explosives are sold to the mining industry, construction uh, as well. I don't know if there's any other applications, but they're the main two. Um, and now, a recent event, uh, venture for Orica has been to make the transition into digital um, software solutions uh, for the mining process. Uh, so that's obviously what we focus on, um, and that's building a suite of software that um, allows uh, the blast process to be designed and then tracked uh, and then um assessed, I guess, to, to do better in the future and improve outcomes and even predict certain outcomes. Um, so an interesting interesting space and it's only been, how long has it been now since Oracle's? Oh, well, so the, the uh, Blast IQ uh, software has only been in production since 2018. So it's, we're really fairly new in um, the landscape for Yeah, for so this. just coming on three years. Yeah. Um, and now there's a suite of four or five different pieces of software. And actually, if we include the new, the latest projects, probably getting close to the, to 10, I'd mm. say. Now, I, I have to say that's that's one hell of a niche. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a niche, but, yeah, we, we don't, yeah, okay, that's a good, that's a really, um, a really good point because our customer base consists of, 50-odd customers around the world, which seems very small um, and limits us in a certain to a certain extent uh, regarding research and the amount of people we can reach out to. But those 50 clients might have, you know, 10 mine sites. Um, other ones are smaller, but often there'll be groups uh, that can go up to 20-odd sites. And then within that site, obviously, you've got, you know, literally hundreds of users in some cases. 
Can you tell us a little bit about what that user looks like? Because I, I can imagine, again, they're, they're special. It depends. It depends on where they're working it within the process. So okay. the users that I tend to um, be working with the most are out in the field. They're the guys that are out in the, the elements in the environment. They're in the trucks. They're there doing all the um, manual labour stuff. Okay. These guys can be quite hard um, to gain trust and to engage with because they're not in front of a computer. Um, they're not checking their emails. That's not a part of their everyday um, workflow. Then we've got Roland who um, works. Yeah, so I deal, what well, at least in the projects I'm working on, I deal with more with uh, the guys that are in the office behind a screen. So that might be well, not always behind a screen. It might be supervisors, superintendents that are more concerned about the performance uh, of a blast or a site in general. Um, they might be trying to get analytics about how well things are performing, um, uh, you know, learn from those and improve um, improve future blasts or future outcomes. Um, and then we, well, we both do a little bit with the designers, so the engineers that actually design what we call blast, but it's a blast pattern. So it might be the arrangement of the holes, the location, the angles of the holes, all these factors that um, influence the the blast itself. Um, and other than that, we've got, yeah, and then you then we also deal with um, users that try to track a particular outcome. So it might be, they might be trying to control, for example, uh, the vibration of a blast um, because they need to meet a certain requirement that's imposed by the government or mm-hmm. um, sometimes the military in certain places. Um, and if they exceed those regulations, they might be prone to lose their licence um, or do damage to a local community, obviously, which is pretty detrimental to the to the life cycle of that mine. Um, so there's a lot of factors, yeah. We we, we have a very vast user group <laughs> across yeah. the suite, yeah. And they yeah. work in totally different contexts, um, very different objectives. So it's it's definitely interesting yeah, in that regard. You're going to be talking um, at the conference about gaining trust for for those groups. Do you want to touch on that a little bit for us? Yeah, well, we, we do um, dive into that a little bit more in, when we uh, do our talk yeah. next month. Um, but, yeah, one of the examples that I always go to is the first time I went out to actually speak to our user group and... Um, one of the guys that I was talking to was pretty much, well, why should I help you? Because you're going to, you know, automate everything. And then we won't have a job. So it's like, okay. so there's a lot of um, trust building that we need to go with our users. It's not necessarily the, what we're there out there to do. Um, A lot of them weren't weren't informed of um, what the uh, outcomes and everything that we were planning with the software. So there was just assumptions. So we tend to go out there build a rapport with these guys before we start, you know, getting into getting our hands dirty and finding out exactly what they do every day to help it and see how we can help improve. I've done, I've done research with farmers um, and they're not the same as miners, obviously, um, but they, they do like you to come to them yes. um, and, and they appreciate that. Um, and they are eventually uh, quite happy to 
answer questions and, and talk. But there always is that. Um, I don't think suspicion is quite the right word uh, necessarily. That would that would be um, a bit of a generalisation. But I think there's there is some hesitancy when it comes to talking to people who live in a city and work in an office um, when you live and work in regional and remote areas. Yeah, yeah, that, that's definitely something that we've experienced as well. Um, and, and a lot of the, I guess, the fears and the barriers that we've encountered are understandable because mm. they don't necessarily understand what our objectives are, what we're trying to do. Um, they often feel that we don't really understand what they do um, and the environment that they work in. So we we definitely try and make an effort to, to go out um, and, and put ourselves in their shoes and work alongside them, whether that's observing uh, or talking to them or whatever's needed in that in that context. But we kind of feel like that approach and other, um, I guess, methods that we've tried to implement definitely helps um, them to feel secure around us and that we really understand what their issues are because we understand what they're trying to do and the kind of challenges they're faced with. Is it a... A heavily sort of unionised workforce? Uh, it depends on where you are in the world, I would yeah, say. Yeah, okay. In Australia, yeah, you there would be unions and, you know, it depends. You opt into them in Australia. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I'm not quite 100% sure how everything is around the rest of the world. But, yeah, each region has their own set of workflows and cultures and languages yeah. that we've, we've always got to have that in mind because we we are producing a global international software yeah. that needs to be universal and recognised. But definitely around here in the Hunter area, there's been a big history of unions mm. and, yeah, definitely. And a lot of that comes back to safety, which is mm. something that we need to consider a lot. I mean, you wouldn't think that that could relate back to software, but there actually have been situations where we've been able to, um, I guess, reduce the risk of, of, of harm through through software and that might be something as simple as the position of screens on a on a truck that loads mm-hmm. the holes with explosives yeah uh, okay. things they might seem like nothing and again that's something that you can only really discover if you're if you're out there and 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 experiencing the conditions that they yeah work. because sometimes yeah. if you're just observing how they do their job and see their frustrations with like Roland mm. said, the position of a screen is like you can see that they're twisting and turning, sticking yep. their heads out the window to try to see what they're doing. And you can start to see where elements within their workflow that you could probably improve better yeah. with, you know, yeah, a bit of UX and, and a bit of a technology to assist in what they're yeah. doing. Yeah, and sometimes that can be the difference between something being a liability and actually being a useful tool. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it can be that extreme. I'm sure there are plenty of examples they can tell you about things that have gotten in the way and made things more difficult for them rather than help them. Yes. Yes, (laughs) yeah. And and probably the most consistent thing would be time. You know, there's always time pressure to meet meet a deadline Um, and that's where software can really be a barrier or it can be an aid. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So a lot of our focus sort of goes into that, especially Katrina, who's more dealing with the field devices because they're recording a lot of that information in the devices and they've got a lot of other stuff they need to deal with as well. So we've had instances, and Katrina will probably talk more on this in a sec, but where where users actually discard the the devices and they're not recording the information and that has a downstream effect because then we can't really offer analytics and 
report on um, on all the data, yeah. and then there's holes there's holes in the system, and then the guys up the top aren't happy. So yeah, so yeah, the the whole purpose of one of the um, packages for the software is um, having a mobile device that's on the field that. It's replacing all the paperwork that they used to do. They would used to go down with a bundle of paper and they would mark it off like that. And then majority of the time, A, you wouldn't be able to see it if it's raining, the, the paper's wet. There's a whole heap of other um, instance environmental uh, problems that you would come with just having paper. I suppose it's fairly similar to a device as well, but you know, we have to make sure we select the right device that's going to be A, easy to carry to um isn't going to get damaged because we're out in the elements. So let's not forget that it can withstand heat, can withstand cold, it's water resistant, all this kind of stuff. Mm. So it is something that they can always get into and use and not have to revert back to the paper at any point. And then in saying that, or within the display and the interface within these devices, we've got to make sure that they can see everything that they need. It's visible, easy to access. They know what they're doing because if they don't know how to enter in the information that they need to do, they're just going to toss it away and, and revert back to the paper. So it's, you know, that piece of equipment is quite vital to gather in the data yeah. for the rest of everything else. Yeah. yeah. And there's even a lot of ergonomic factors that play into that as well, yeah. like your size of fingers, um, and that can vary depending on the region, which is yeah, okay. an interesting thing and something that we that we experience the use of uh, gloves as well. So often that's a requirement on field. Mm-hmm. Um, so they need to use the gloves. They need to be, they need to be tactile, obviously. Um, what are some of the other ones? Dust on the screen. Yeah, humidity. Dust on the, yeah, humidity. Obviously, can all affect the performance yeah. of the of the devices. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot to take into account. All of it. <laughs> <laughs> we have to. You have to put. You have to consider all of it. And make sure that. When you're designing the interfaces and the final products, what I tend to do is put, I've got something that's sort of similar to what they use out in the field. Um, I would take the design that I've got, like a screenshot of that, put it onto my device. Then I will go outside and test to see if I can still see it. And if I, and if, and if I can understand and visualise and press buttons on my device outside, then I have a better chance of actually getting that through to the guys out in the field and they'll be able to use it as well. So, so we're trying to simulate. Yeah, we need to simulate the situation as much as possible. We can't just assume that, you know, inside an office with your bright mm-hmm. lights, it may look good on our uh, computer screens, but in reality it may not work at all outside so, of the device. So how, how much sort of prototyping and field testing do you get to do with these things? Initially, they, we did quite a bit, especially for the mobile device. There was yeah. quite a lot of testing before it went into production. Um, these days, what we tend to do now that we've got a live product is that we will take a, a certain section, get it into a test environment rather than a production environment, and we'll get this out to field specialists that we have out um, in all the regions who know all our customers. Mm-hmm. And they've got this test environment they can test everything to make you know different scenarios that we may not think of while uh creating the the new features um in development stage and they can test it thoroughly they take it out to some users they can test it thoroughly before we actually uh release it to the the wider community yeah we, we try and do as much as we can obviously you know time limitations dictate that to a certain extent 
Sure. Um, and we do have the challenge of having quite a small customer base to start with, and then we have issues like different time zones uh, playing in. You Generally, people, especially sort of more senior positions, have very limited time um, and their schedule changes a lot because of all sorts of factors that can go on in the mind. They're very reactive to to what's happening. So we experienced that when we went um, visited some customers in South America that, you know, we'd start with a a schedule for the day and that would be thrown out the window within the first hour because the first meeting has been hijacked by something else and that just filters through to to everything um, that was planned. So we sort of, we make tentative plans and then we, um, we assume that things are going to change. Um, so we've learned okay. to be quite agile in our approach. Uh, we've run meetings in trucks um, along pothole-filled roads on the way to <laughs> <laughs> to a site because that's the only chance we're going to have to talk to a particular person. So yeah. we just try and, um, yeah, make opportunities out of what, I guess in the yeah, past we wouldn't have considered opportunities. Yeah, one of the experiences in, a, in South America that we had was that we didn't speak to one of the engineers until we were actually down on the bench in the pit and sitting yeah. standing there on the edge of a blast pattern with things in front of us. And there, and because they spoke in Spanish, I don't speak Spanish very well, Roland could understand to an extent, but we also had a translator there for us. So okay. he's talking to us in Spanish. We have the translator telling us what she's saying we respond and then translate back to her and this is all down outside in the middle of a, a mine pit. So it was. It, it is quite a very different to your lab-based kind of uh, user research. Yeah. And we, we kind of, we make a list, sorry, Steve, I'll just cut you off there. There you go. We tried to make um, a list of, of all the information that we need um, okay. through a particular engagement and we just try and get as much of that covered yeah. as we can and yep. we don't really care how we do it or when we do it uh, as long as we come away with the information that we need. I have this I have this mental model of mining operations as these slow, steady, plotting type things that are relatively predictable and relatively stable. Um, and I'm not getting that from you two at all. <laughs> no. No, there's a lot of... It, it is a simple process. I mean, if you think about it, you're, sure. you're drilling a hole, you're putting explosives in it, and then you're... It goes up and then you dig it out and then start again. Yeah, you, you <laughs> ignite that, it, it, it um, you know, breaks apart the rock and then you extract what you want. The, the thing that I've learned and probably that most people wouldn't consider is that there's so many variables within that. So, you, you know, your, your, your geography, for example, can have a huge effect on how you design the blast. Mm. As, you, as you're actually loading the holes and putting the explosives in, you're, there's a learning process there as well. So now we've got smart drills that are pulling, you know, additional information in. And that might mean that you might redesign the loading, so the amount of explosives and where you put the explosives to get as yep. close to the outcome you were, you were hoping for from the mm. start. So there's a lot of variables along the way and a lot of, levers that can be pulled hmm. along the way um, and then we're yeah, trying to record all that, allowing for these changes to be made yeah. and then recording everything so we know what's happened along the process so you get this sort of, you know, more holistic vision of, of what happened and how you ended up with what you've got. Um, so, yeah, I think it's more like all these varying factors that, it, that make it so um, unpredictable. 
Can I just point out that neither of us have a mining industry background and we have just learned all this. I by, bet. By being on the field and around people. Um, yeah. So most of the stuff that we've absorbed has been with the users or with experts within the field. So um, I have, I think the only course I did was a safety course when I first started um, just to give me a rundown on the process and everything else has been learned on the fly, talking to people um, wherever possible. It's the same with Roland. It's, you just start absorbing the, the knowledge from all these users and everyone that you speak to and then we've got to then convert that into um, something that, we, that will make their jobs easier. So we've had to learn mm. enough knowledge to get our way through yeah, I, I think we're lucky to a certain extent because we've got a lot of very experienced subject matter experts around us mm-hmm. um, and we rely on them pretty heavily. So within the office we, we've got, I guess, people that have um, started off, you know, working on site and then they've progressed into more digital roles yeah. um, and some really beautiful stories there. Uh, and they're... I, I guess that's one of the messages we're trying to get across when we approach people on site as well is that, you know, working with us can also create opportunities in the future. Yeah. It depends on how they, how they, um, uh, want to progress their careers, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How they want to approach it, I guess, whether they see the positive or the negative. Yeah. Um, now, where was I getting with that? So, yeah, so we've got a lot of subject matters, uh, matter experts in, in house, but we've also got field specialists which are, yeah. you know, dedicated to a particular area. They've got, you know, a portfolio of, of clients that they interact with on a daily basis. So, yes, we do interact with direct customers, but we also have um, specialists within each area that can speak for the customers to a certain degree as well, because one of our biggest challenges is getting access, like I mentioned before um, for a number of different factors to the actual customers when when we need it. Um, so that's a little bit of a fallback, but it also throws a different perspective on it as well. I think that's wonderful. I know I, I, a lot of people will be uh, listening and being jealous of the amount of uh, time that you've had to go deep into a single topic area. Um, a lot of people, particularly, yeah. you know, like myself working in an agency, it would take me you know, a decade or more um, to be able to learn that amount of information about a particular topic because this week I'm working on that one, but I may not work on something similar for another, you know, 12 or 18 months or a, a few years kind of thing. So you're in a you're in an enviable, enviable position of being able to just really, really uh, immerse yourselves in that one topic, which is awesome. Yeah, that that's actually, it makes me think of um, a scenario where that's sort of, backfired on us so we we outsourced a lot of our dev work for a while um in it was split we had the the data um team in singapore and then we had a development team in india okay um and we found it very challenging because there wasn't really any domain knowledge uh, in those teams because obviously they were bouncing between different different products and you know when when were they ever get the time to really understand it yeah we just felt like so much time and effort was going into giving context to everything so that they actually understood what we were trying to achieve. Yeah, this is very similar to translation, yeah. so translating we, as well. So mm. what actually happened was obviously it's, um, you know, it, the incentive is to save money, right? That's usually why you, you take things offshore, but sure. it actually ended up costing us a lot more money because it took a lot longer than it should have. 
Um, and then we had the same issues with time zones and coordinating meetings and getting the right people in the meetings and then maybe organising another meeting to get the right people in the meetings because it was someone else who worked on it or whatever. And that sort of just went round in circles. And eventually we ended up bringing the team back here. So that's quite recent and we've, it's had, we've, had, we've encountered a lot of hurdles but we're getting back on track. And I think owning that here, we've realised through all of that that we need to, we need to do it internally. We can definitely go out seek expertise in certain areas but we need to have control of it here because there's that deep fundamental knowledge of of what we're trying to do and the intricacies of it so roland katrina thank you very much it's a fascinating topic and i can't wait to hear more about it at the design research conference in five weeks time but thank you for taking time out today to to speak with us mm, thank you pleasure, very much steve thank you very much for having us all right. Thank you. Have a great afternoon and we will we will see you soon. Take care. See ya.